0: This video is sponsored by Game Toppers. Turn your own kitchen or dining room table into a premium portable game solution at a fraction of the cost. Hey everybody, welcome to the final video in my top 50 games of all time series. This is of course gonna be number one through 10. Uh, I'm just gonna jump right into it. At the end after the number one, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the process and all that kind of stuff. I mentioned some of this in the first video, my 41 through 50 video. And uh, I mentioned I would kind of bring it up here again uh, after the end. So we're gonna go ahead and do that later on. Well, let's go ahead and jump into uh, number 10. This is Shadows of Brimstone. This is kind of a carryover from the last video. My number 12 was League of Dungeoneers. My number 11 was Warhammer Quest, the 1995 edition especially. Shadows of Brimstone to me is like the pinnacle dungeon crawl uh, style game that I really enjoy. You know, I like this one at all the player counts, although I don't think I've ever played it up to six. We've played it with five. It caps out at six, and I think there's rules to play it with more, but I'm not really sure if that's just a variant. But yeah, one, two, three, four, up to five is good. Um, It's a great solo game. When I solo it, I usually don't, run more than two characters because it's just a lot. It's overwhelming. Uh, Where some of the other games, Warhammer Quest and Dungeoneers, uh, I can run all four characters. Okay. You know, solo, but with uh, Shadows of Brimstone, especially as you start to kind of level them up, they just become sort of unwieldy if you're trying to run four at a time. Now this one kind of gets the edge over the others. Um, There's a couple of points here. One is the first point is, if you saw me talk about at the end of the last video, I like this procedurally sort of automatically generated sort of roguelike experience of just things kind of happening. You're, you kind of get a bunch of people together and you run in a little adventure and you kind of see what happens, you see how long they can survive. And you run them in this case to about like level eight. And that's pretty much when you should kind of just retire your character and start some new ones over. There's not really like a end game or sort of final victory per se. There's lots of final bosses that you can get for this game, you know, and you can sort of start, start to uh, fight those towards the end, and then, you know, see if you can beat them or not, or if you wipe on them, and then you can kind of just play them, and there are so many tons of different characters and things like that. Now, the stuff that I have for it is just all the Old West stuff and all the samurai stuff. Uh, I, didn't, I wasn't really interested in the Viking, and especially the conquistador stuff. That just it didn't really fit to me. Um, there's something about Samurais and Old West that has, it it shouldn't work together, but it kind of does, and the kind of weird Wild West vibe, because Samurais are kind of like cowboys or something, you know what I mean, like, not really, but it's, it has that kind of wandering lone traveler that is, I guess that would be a ronin, not really a samurai, but, you know, it's got that sort of same vibe, but there's an Asian vibe to it, and I like mixing sort of the Cthulhu monsters and stuff from the Old West sets, And, well, there's not more than Cthulhu. There's, like, aliens and undead and all these things. And then some of the weird Riff Asian, uh, you know, monsters that don't really... I don't know where they come from. They don't really seem like they come out of any kind of reality or mythology. But mixing all that kind of stuff together is just cool. And that's kind of like the thing that just edges it out for me is being able to set this up and put up these kind of weird adventures and just kind of see what happens. And I really like that about this. And I talked a little bit about it when I talked about Warhammer Quest was... And the re- reason it gets kind of the edge over uh, Warhammer Quest League of Dungeoneers is you can kind of build your own little world here. And there's so much stuff for this game. I don't have everything for it or near everything. Even if you, like, leave off the Vikings and the Conquistadors. You know, I, there's still stuff I I, I want to theoretically get for it. There's probably, honestly, there's probably like one... I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but there's one kind of big box expansion I want to get still. And that, that'd that probably be it. I have way more than enough stuff for it. Hundreds of miniatures and stuff. I haven't even painted hardly half of it. Um, And, uh, yeah, so it just that whole procedurally generated, you know, fun stuff. Now, the one thing that it does that I think, honestly, uh, game design-wise, mechanic-wise, League of Dungeoneers actually probably improves upon it. But War, Shadows of Brimstone gets pretty close, like they're neck and neck, Dungeoneers and Shadows of Brimstone, in terms of the mechanics and stuff like that, they they both kind of fix Warhammer Quest. Um, and so that's why Shadows of Brimstone kind of gets the edge over that, you know, because it, with Warhammer Quest and Shadows of Brimstone, it's, you're able to kind of world build and put your own little thing together, that gives it kind of the edge. And then Shadows of Brimstone has some of those little bit smarter mechanics like League of Dungeoneers does over Warhammer Quest, so that gives it the, kind of the final edge. Um, but really, I can interchange all three of these games just kind of depending on the mood and the theme I want to get into and kind of the vibe I want. This one is probably the least brutal out of all of those three, too. It still can be pretty brutal, um, but it, uh, well, all of the games kind of do this, but as you level up, it gets a little bit easier, so you kind of have to throw more at your characters and stuff like that. Um, but this one as well, the other thing I would sort of mention about that is. The nice thing about League of Dungeoneers is it's everything's in one box, right? You just, boom, you don't really need anything else for it. I know he's working on expansions and stuff, which would be cool, but you need nothing else. Warhammer Quest, you need more stuff. You got to kind of build your own little thing for sure. Now, Shadows of Brimstone, you need more stuff, but you don't really need to put in a lot of extra work. I would say you get one of the big main base boxes and like two, you know, expansions or whatever to kind of give you a little bit more variety of characters that you're going to run into and then you're good you don't need to go like hog wild all in you know spend a thousand dollars or whatever it would end up being if you were to go and pick everything up you don't have to do that now i've kind of done that over time and picked up things here and there and that's been really cool and it's really enriched my experience but it's not a requirement Like a Warhammer Quest, like it's a requirement, I think. You cannot just play that with the base game. You could just, eh. it would not be a a good game. Wouldn't be anywhere near my top 100 if it was just base game. But once you add in the extra characters, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, But then this is the same. So this one, I think you need, this one has grown on me over time as well. Uh, Just, you know, as I've started to add stuff in. So you need that kind of variety and stuff. A a base game is not going to get you there. You need all the extra stuff. But with all the extra stuff, I'm really into it. Now, alternative for this, and this will kind of sum up my thoughts from last week as well, my alternative for this would be AlterQuest. Quest. Now, AlterQuest is like the different side of the spectrum of these dungeon crawls. Now, last week I talked about Oathsworn and Descent Legends of the Dark. Those are very good, like plot-driven, linear narratives. You know, there's some forking, of course, but it's 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 a plot-driven dungeon crawl. There is a line of stuff that you go through. It's not a Warhammer Quest style Shadows of Brimstone, the deep dungeoneers style game, where you roll up characters and just go, oh, what's gonna happen today? You know, it's a very linear thing. Now Alter Quest has some of that, but it also has a super clever system. Uh, for getting almost to the procedurally generated side where you mix and match some of the different quests with the different altars and all that stuff. And it's all very card driven. It's very much like a, it's a deck builder, pretty much. I mean, and it drives the game in a way very akin to Oath Sworn and akin to, you know, on the edges of a Mage Knight, not nearly the headache, but very Mage Knight esque, you know, in, in the touch and feel and the vibe of it. And it has a lot of very cool, crunchy mechanics and, and ways that you interact with the scenarios and the different sort of non-combat things that you can do and all the special abilities and the asymmetry between all the different characters and all that stuff. Now, I don't know that this you'll be able to find Alter Quest at all, again, because the Blacklist Games is going through a tough time right now, a really tough time. They've lost their best developers. As far as I'm concerned, the Sadler Brothers, um, and the company is, it, I've been watching them kind of closely, and they have been trying to make amends because they ran into some really big issues, Kickstarter shipping wise, I mean, we don't need to hash that out here, honestly, I don't really care, but I would like to see AlterQuest kind of stay around, you know, because it's a game that I think, like, in my fantasy world, there would be a game that used mechanics like Oathsworn and Quest, especially AlterQuest, Quest and was able to somehow manage that system and then lean into the procedurally generated, like, I don't know, let's go west, run into a town, find a quest, see what kind of shops, see what items they have available, what's the big bad there, level up, level up, level up, and then we buy a big mansion and then we retire our characters and just kind of rinse and repeat and have kind of world events and all these things going on. And it would be really cool to see that marriage of those really modern mechanics with that, and I don't know how you do that without being like overly encumbered with a bunch of garbage mechanics just to be very smart and not still retain the flavor of these other games that I'm talking about. But Alter Quest gets pretty dang close to it, and it's really fun. Um, we've played through the campaign twice. I played through it solo, and I played through it with some friends all the way through. We did like because there's kind of a procedurally generated campaign, which we did, which was a lot of fun. And then, you know, a couple of one-off games here and there and stuff like that. And so really, I've had a ton of fun with it. It's a great little thing where you're like, I want to kind of get a flavor of a thing, of a campaign, but not, you know, it's only six games long and you do level up and you do all this stuff and it has a dungeon crawly feel and it has some narrative little, you know, sort of sprinkles in there. Um, Anyway, so that's kind of the other side of the coin. But for my money, the reason that Alter Quest and Oaththorn and these other ones aren't in here... Um, is because I, my preference is, again, that procedurally generated kind of, you know, roguelite um, experience. So that's number 10, Shadows of Brimstone. And we're going to go ahead and move into number nine. This is Defenders of the Realm. This is, by I mean, obviously it's the highest on the list. I would say this is my favorite pure sort of co-op game. Um, it's very much based on the Pandemic system. Um, Richard Lannis, the designer, has given full credit to Matt Leacock and that whole thing. He does do a kind of a riff on it. Uh, where where Defenders of the Realm. It's like this, uh, you know, rash of monsters sort of expanding and exploding and, and like kind of tainting the land and all this stuff or setting fire to the land depending on which expansions you have and all this stuff and just trying to beat them back similar to the way the disease cubes come out in Pandemic. And he has this kind of deck thing where you sort of you know, you flip the plague cards or whatever, the monster cards, and they'll move around and spawn stuff. And then they'll kind of reshuffle and and get back in there. So he does it in a little bit looser way, which I think works perfectly for Defenders of the Realm. There's a handful of expansions out there that really can kind of change the game up. Like you can play against just like a pure dragon invasion. There's like different minions. So the basic game is just like the minions are just kind of different colors and they kind of go with a different boss. You have to defeat the four different bosses. And then you can also get the minions that actually do stuff and have these special abilities, which makes it really hard, and all this stuff. And you can play it, um, talking about player count, one to four players, and I've played it at all the player counts. I would say, um, I don't really know. I feel like, I don't know. It's kind of a lot to play it four-fisted, right? If you're a solo person playing with four players. I've done that, and it's okay. I don't know, there's something overwhelming about it. Not because there's like a lot of complexity, but there's just a lot of like, it's nice to have those other brains at the table <laughs> because you kind of know like, oh, well, I should do this with my character on this turn. And then it's like, okay, you should do that. But to keep all of what all four all four characters should do in your head is like, it's kind of a lot. It's not complexity. It's just strategic like oppression. <laughs> like, I don't know what everybody should do. So it's good to have everybody at the table. Everybody's in their kind of little corner and then they can sort of figure it out and everybody helps each other and it works out really well. And the other part of that is when you come together to fight a boss or something you will get together and do teamwork and you will have all the characters that want to fight it in the same spot you might take the action to do it but then i can contribute cards and that kind of stuff and we've seen that in some of the later pandemic um sort of spin-off games that sort of concept um but that's what i really love about defenders of the realm is it actually feels like oh no we were out kind of doing quests getting information figuring out you know go help this village, help this, do this cool quest. And then now we're going to come together, we're going to fight the big dragon boss. And now we're together and it's a big battle, a very abstracted in a board game sense. But it's cool because it has that vibe of, of teamwork and everybody's sort of been collecting and working together and now we're going to have a, a, an encounter with them. And I love that aspect of it. And there's enough sort of, I don't know what to say, Ameritrash stuff in there they keeps it very pulpy and adventure-y and all that kind of stuff, so it just adds to uh, the fun of it. Whereas, like, pandemic is a very serious sort of theme, especially you know given recent events, and you know it's a serious theme anyway. So, it's very puzzly and, and um, you know sort of driven with like a, a, hard, a rough edge to it, not even a rough edge, like a, like a bladed edge in pandemic, and that's that's okay. I mean, that's fine. I enjoy the game. We'll talk a little bit about that in my alternative. But this has enough kind of bumps and everything along the road that you still feel like instead of just playing like a co-op puzzle, you know, like a Ghost Stories or or whatever these these pure co-ops, it has that adventure feel to it, and that I love that about this game. And it's just I would never turn turn down playing this game. I mean, the game is so good that I think they've like stopped the idea of making a second edition. I mean, I don't. I'm kind of Monday morning quarterbacking here, but. For a while, they've been talking about making a second edition, and then they were just like, nah, we'll make another expansion for this. (laughs) And I'm like, the game's been out like 15 years now. And they're just like, ah, forget it. We'll just make another expansion. It's like, that's cool with me. Um, So yeah, so that's Defenders of the Realm. Absolutely love it. It's kind of hard to get. I think, though, they do kind of come in and out of print with it, and they kind of revitalize it with the little mini expansions and stuff. So keep your eyes on it. But the alternative, I mentioned already, Pandemic, Um, My alternative would be Pandemic Legacy Season 1. I I honestly prefer Season 2. Most people don't. I've not played Season 0 yet. Uh, Season 1 was a revelation. And, you know, Defenders of the Realm has that same, uh, you know, obviously sort of DNA with the original Pandemic. Um, But I wanted to mention this because I talked about Oathsworn last week. I talked a little bit about some of these other games, Descent Legends of the Dark in this one. And so, like in some universe, Pandemic Legacy Season 1 or Season 2, both of them combined, are my favorite game of all time. They would be easily number one. No question about it. Because it was just such a friggin' amazing experience start to finish. The story, the plot, like the level of weight and the impact on the decisions that you make when you kind of are like adjusting your characters based on some of the legacy style events that go on. Like you just can't beat that. And Oathsworn has a lot of that too. But I, you really, I got to give the edge to Pandemic Legacy because it's so good. Like, it's just, it shouldn't be this good. Like, it should, it is like, it is like other media level quality. Like, I'm talking movies, music, whatever. Because there's an emotional place that something can take you and sort of a, you know, just an other place, spiritual, emotional, whatever the heck you want to call it. And Pandemic Legacy will do that. It will 100% do that. I mean, if you let it, like you can look at it, like, cause sometimes when people like look at a game and I, I see people talk about it and, and either in their videos or on uh, board game geek or whatever, it, you know, I'm not trying to call anybody out here because I do this, I do this all the time too. But you're like you're picking apart the math and you're picking apart the structure and all this friggin' bull about you know the balance and all these other like number crunching things and all these other little parts and replayability and all this friggin' nerd stuff. But then you have something like Pandemic Legacy come in and I'm just like I'm I'm in I'm it's like and a lot of these games in this top ten are, are giving me the same sort of tinglies where it's like. What do you want me to say about it i'm just going to get up and leave and you go play the game for yourself and it's awesome like it's that good that good so i don't know i can't recommend it enough and so but it's also the reason it's not on the list is it's gone the experience is it's gone i'm not going to have that again i could play it again and that's why some of these others are on the list because I can come back to it. I can reinvigorate it. I can reinvestigate it. I can just dive right back in. I can't do that with Pandemic Legacy season one. I mean, I guess I could try, but I don't even want to. I don't want to pull that tail on that tiger again because I want it to go away. Like I don't want it to be this artifact. I don't want it to be this, this, this product that sits on a shelf. I wanted to leave it as an experience and let it go. Because that's that. I think that that's. I think for me, that's how I should treat it. That's how I should play it. And so, anyway, you kind of have to give a mention to that kind of stuff here. Now, some of these other games, they give me that same thing, but it's different. Like, it's there and I want to kind of revisit it and re-go back to it. And just kind of re-investigate. But I don't want to do that with these these other ones. And sworn, I might feel the same way. I don't know. Descent Legends of the Dark. But 100% Pandemic Legacy. But you can't really talk about stuff being the best of all time and not mention that game. It's just, you just cannot do that for me. All right, number nine. Uh, Number eight is San Juan, specifically second edition. Uh, Speaking of like reinvigorating and reinvestigating and replaying, San Juan is like, that's my card game. I love it. Second edition has some of the expansion stuff from first edition. There was a first edition. that had some expansions and then it pulled it basically second edition, all the good stuff out of the expansion and get rid of the bad stuff. Um, love it. It's in the same vein. I'm just going to go ahead and mention the alternative here as uh, race for the galaxy. And they're both developed at the same time. Uh, one went one way, one went the other way. And it's a, it's one of those role selection card games where you're trying to build up a display of cards and they all kind of start comboing off each other you're generating victory points, you're getting points for the cards. Uh, it's a very sort of small deck of somewhat knowable cards. In this case, it's easy to teach and play. I played it with the family, played with the gamer group and all that stuff. Uh, I'll play it at two, three or four, no problem. Uh, it, to me, it's just like, it doesn't have like all the cards and all the wackiness of like the Race for the Galaxy or Glory to Rome or um, you know other games of that style. But this is the one I can just keep replaying. And I just have never gotten sick of this game. I just never have gotten sick of this game. And it feels always to me like I'm playing. And I've talked to actually a couple of magic pros about this. And so I was like, oh man, that's that was like a that was a good moment. Because I was like, you know what? This feels like like the level of depth of magic, but without having having any. Cards you got to buy, and they were like 100%. Like, they would, they were magic pros, they would gone and won tournaments, like big grand prix tournaments. And they were like, No, we play this like you know, in our downtime because it just has this like really straightforward fundamentals of card management, hand management, resource management, you know, card count, pacing, the turn order stuff with like you know, buildings and, and getting big hands and spending your cards, and that whole kind of rhythm and cadence of card play. Um, a little bit of variability there you know obviously with the drawing and then the flipping of the shipping tiles and stuff like that but it's so it's such an easy small package to get into break it out and you know i'll go through phases where i play this a lot and then i'll set it down for a few months and then i'll always you know break it out within a year's time and play it again and again and again and it just is like everything that i when i think of the word game i'm just like yeah this is a card game and this is a game that i just will always play and just always find little fun interactions and stuff like that. I do think you want the second edition, you want all the extra cards that they have because it just adds a little bit of extra strategies and stuff like that. Um, They they will probably never expand it again. I don't think they should. There might be a little bit of room in there in that design for something, but I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd touch it. it. the 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 inspiration for that design whatever it have to be would have to come from somewhere special and not just because somebody was like i want to make an expansion for san juan you know and get my name on it but uh yeah so anyway that's i can't recommend enough it's like a cheap little box and it's a piece of cake you can play it two three four it's easy it's quick it doesn't overstay it's welcome it's fun race for the galaxy like i said is the alternative i like Race for the galaxy too it's got all that stuff for me race for the galaxy um I like it two, three, four, probably not four. Two, three, four, yeah, I don't know. I, I like it two, too, because Race for Galaxy has a really good kind of two player mode, which is, which is interesting. So two's probably my favorite there for Race. And I, I think with Race, you also kind of need that first two expansions, first one or two expansions to go with the base game. After that, I would just. I don't want any of that extra stuff. I've not liked any of the expansions after those first couple. It's just too much, too much stuff. <laughs> Which is why I'm nervous if anybody were to say, oh, I've got a new expansion for San Juan. I'm like, cool, you're gonna ruin it. <laughs> I kind of feel like that's happened with Race. Um, but yeah, so that's it. You know, Glory to Rome's also good. That's one that I've got on my shelf as well. There's a few others like this, but my my mine is San Juan. So number eight. The number seven is Cuba Libre. This is a coin game. This is almost kind of a stand-in for all of the coin games. Not all of them. I haven't played all of them. This is easily my favorite coin game. It's, um, these are all set in, if you're not familiar, like, uh, somewhat modern times. Although Not all of them are modern. Most of them are somewhat modern. This is about the Cuban revolution with Castro and Che Guevara and all those guys. And, um... And the mafia is involved, and the existing uh, dictatorship at the time of Cuba is involved. And, you know, it's four factions, and you have the two basically revolutionary factions, the communist faction, and the uh, the other one, and then the, um, uh, sorry, the mafia faction, and then the the, ex- the existing government. And it's coin game. And so you're playing the coin system, uh, which if you're not familiar with, I would check it out any of the games in it. Uh, Cuba Libre is probably the easiest to get into. Uh, it's also my favorite because I just like how the different factions interplay with each other in that. Um, I, the player count-wise, uh, I like it at all player counts. And that probably goes for every coin game that I've played and enjoyed is one, two, three, and 4. Uh, it has these kind of like bots that it runs um, when you do, you know, solo game that are, are daunting to look at, but actually aren't so bad. And it's actually a good way to kind of learn the game. Uh, kind of just, you could even set a coin game up and then run the bots and play a zero player game and kind of see how the game works. That's actually a really good way to learn uh, a game. Um, so I actually, actually, actually recommend that. But yeah, the system is fantastic. It, to me, it's like they've, there's a lot of games. I don't know, it might be like 10 now. And now to me, it just kind of comes down to the theme that I want to get into. And I like the Cuba Libre theme because it has, there's revolutionary aspects of it. There is nobody is a good guy, in my opinion, in any of these factions. And then you have the mafia, you know, involved and all that stuff. So you have these very disparate sort of angles. And a lot of the games are like that. There usually be, you know, there'll be the, the uh, pre-existing government and then some insurgents. And the coin means counterinsurgency, so the government is the counterinsurgents. And then you have these other factions that are either trying to take advantage of what's going on to establish power, like in the Andean Abyss. You had the drug cartel which is kind of like the mafia role in there and they were just trying to basically you know for better or worse s- stick the country into chaos and then profit off of it so all of these different factions have all of these asymmetric different goals and somewhat asymmetric mechanics so like the, you know, mechanics of putting out troops or units and bases and collecting resources and income is all slightly different from each other, from each of the four factions. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of that um, in games like Root, especially, and some of these other ones come out like this uh, since the Andean Abyss, the original coin game. Uh, I don't know, I, I can't really talk enough about the coin system. I would just say, for me, Cuba Libre is the easiest easiest to get into the theme i like the most the you know easiest to get in and play Um, these others and i'll jump into the alternative here uh, which i have as as a distant plane are sometimes much more complex Uh, ones that i've enjoyed would be liberty at liberty or death and a fire in the lake so liberty or death is about the american revolution not really modern but it's not you know ancient times (laughs) Uh, that's a good one very complex Fire in the Lake is about the war in Vietnam, very complex. That's probably the most complex one that I've played. I think there's a couple others that have probably surpassed that that I haven't played. But uh they're really good. They're really really good. It just, there's a lot going on to them. And in some of them, like for example in Liberty or Death, you have like the French faction which kind of does nothing for about the first third of the game. And so that's a good one to play if you're like teaching the other players. Um, And and Abyss is a simpler one, but it has the UAC, which I forget what it stands for. You kind of do nothing for a little while. But if you're the one teaching the others, you can be those factions, the French or the UAC, teach everybody else because you should know all the factions, and then you kind of just run off to the side and try to jump in at the last minute and and win. But if you've been doing your job teaching, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so those other ones are really big. Now, my favorite of these other ones, probably my second favorite, is A Distant Plane which is about the, uh, war in Afghanistan, um, which I would be interested if they would update because the U S has pulled out of there, uh, for the most part. And, uh, but a distant plane is, it's almost like too fresh the materials too fresh for me. So I don't know, just like, talking about emotions earlier, like it makes me angry sometimes playing it, and not really like at anybody just angry <laughs> it just makes me like mad, I'm like why is this situation, why is this none of these four factions have like figured out a way to pull out of this and fix it for everybody involved mostly the citizens of Afghanistan and it's like this is yeah, and just like not one of you four can get your shit together <laughs> Yeah, so, um, but it is very palpable and powerful and visceral and all of that stuff. And its it takes you to a place. Uh, I was talking about that earlier with like Pandemic Legacy. Um, that one, the plane really takes you to a place. And they all the coin ones really kind of do that. They really steep you in the setting and the decision-making that, uh, it, it, obviously it abstracts it, but it steeps you in the decision-making of maybe those in charge or those that have some say about what's going on. And in a way that, you know, it's not a war game per se, because you're not moving units and troops and battalions and regiments and all that stuff. There is those little combats that'll happen, but it's, it's so much more layered. And maybe it's an illusion, but there's so much more involved in everything that you have to kind of process about what's going on. I don't know. It's really, really good. Can't say enough about the coin system, and Cuba Libre has to be my number one coin game. So, my next one, number six, is Clash of Cultures, specifically the Monument Edition. The new one was kind of the second edition. Uh, this is, uh, I like Civ games. I had a couple of Civ games further down on these videos that I mentioned. This is easily my favorite Civ game. Uh, player count wise, two, three, four. Three or four is probably. My best. I think four you gotta you gotta play with four, I think. I do like it with two and three. I still do like it, but with four, you gotta have it because you gotta have the trading. You gotta have because you can trade cards and resources and all that kind of stuff. In a two-player game, you're not gonna trade with each other. In a three-player game, eh. Three-player bounce on like some of these um dudes on a map games can be wonky and it has some of that, although some of the other stuff takes care of that. Four player. You've got the ability to be sort of partners with somebody that you probably won't really interact with in a military way, maybe until the very end of the game, if at all. And that's nice to have sort of a trading partner like that, that you could do that. And that adds that little extra aspect that a lot of Civ games are frankly missing, other than, of course, the very, very original one from like the early 80s, where it was basically all trading. Um, and it it has that and it has all of these cool like tech trees and all this stuff different civilizations because the Monument Edition has the first expansion kind of bundled with it. So you've got some cool asymmetrical powers and a lot of that stuff really goes a long way to um, making a game that's not just about like pure conquest there is plenty of it there's plenty of dudes on a map stuff. But there's a lot of cool establishing of economies and trade routes and other little special abilities and things that you can interact with all the different building types and that kind of stuff based on, you know, which leaders and civilization faction you have. Um, It's pretty straightforward. It's got just that pure, I don't know, there's something really pleasant about the design where it's just very leans into its Ameritrash side very much so we're just like here's a ton of abilities here's a ton of different types of units and buildings and special abilities from all the different leaders and blah 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 all that stuff and it just but it's also very smooth and very elegant design it doesn't like get too wonky I will say the faction boards are there's a it's a lot for sure and I would say probably actually if you were going to play with the first time Play it without the expansion stuff. It does make a clear delineation about what is what. Play it without the expansion stuff. Just play it with the base game, so you can get to know kind of the tech tree, because that's that's a that's the biggest hurdle. Then when you get kind of comfortable with that, you know what you can do. Then throw the other stuff in, because without the little cool quirkiness of some of the different factions, it kind of plays out like the alternative, which I'll mention in a minute, where it's like everybody kind of builds up and then we have a big battle in the middle and then whoever wins that wins. <laughs> and sometimes they can still do that, but I've seen games of this where there's like almost no conflict. There's a little bit like on the edges, but you know, everybody's kind of like in their little sort of world of the little engine that they've built up. And they're like, oh, I need that one hex. But I, don't really need to, I don't really need to destroy your whole civilization, but I need some of it. <laughs> um, so I like that. I just like all of that, the dynamic of that and the kind of the way the balance kind of shifts in terms of what's important. So i can't remember now the alternative is uh, eclipse and so this feels very much like an eclipse style game because you've got the big hexes and the exploration and the 4x parts and all that and eclipse is in space it's uh you know it's it's a little bit more wacky in terms of the powers and stuff like that i would say eclipse is probably a little simpler to get into at first Um, but they probably have kind of equal levels of complexity and depth once you've explored them i really like eclipse um it's just a very enjoyable game eclipse is another one where i think you you probably need like at least four to play just to kind of have that dynamic at the table they both have like big sort of tech boards in different ways um now i've not played eclipse in a while and i've not played much of the new edition stuff so i think there's been some fixes and rounding off the edges there um so i I probably should give it a revisit because i really did enjoy it but to me, Clash of Cultures... I like the theme a little better. I'm more of a Civ person than a Space person. Although I like Space stuff. Um, but I like that Clash can lean into the trading a little bit. And Eclipse has it in a kind of weird, super efficient way. <laughs> Almost too efficient. But um, and that kind of thing. So they're very, very close to each other, I think. So if you like Eclipse, Clips, you probably like Clash or vice versa. Um, but to me, Clash gets the edge. And that's just... If you if you wanted me to play a big epic because Eclipse is kind of a civilization and space game, but if you want me to play that, I'm like, ah, I don't. There's no way I'd play anything over Clash really at that point. So that's number six. Number five is uh, Game of Thrones the board game, the second edition. You can't really get the first edition, and I would say you want to have this one with the Mother of Dragons expansion. You can get rid. of there's, there's two other expansions. Don't ignore those. Just get rid of them. <laughs> uh, one of them is really bad. I can remember. It's the Feast for Crows one. That one's terrible. And then the Dance with Dragons one. I think that was the name of it. It's, it's okay. It's actually kind of fun. I like that one. But the Mother of Dragons expansion is amazing. And it makes the game almost playable at just about any player count. Because it you basically will have all of the factions in play with the Mother of Dragons expansion. But then you will have like uh, NPC factions. For the ones that aren't having players at the table and if somebody wants to drop out of the game because they feel like they're losing and they got to go we've had this happen in the game actually and they dropped out they've transformed into a vassal faction and then they're able to be kind of manipulated and used by the other players and it was like holy cow this actually works Um, so this is not a civilization game it's almost a dudes on the map game it's more of a diplomacy style game because uh, you have these like face-down orders and stuff. You have lots of table talk and there can be betrayals. And you, there can be sort of a little alliances where you can sort of contribute your forces to somebody else's battle. And that kind of stuff. And it's got all the Game of Thrones, Westeros stuff in there. And I do like the Mother of Dragons expansion because it has uh, Daenerys and all of Her Dragons and i actually won a game of it and we i just burned everything down i was like this is perfect (laughs) i wasn't murdered at the end though so i burned everything down and ruled westeros for probably 10 minutes before somebody did kill me (laughs) um i was like i love this game (laughs) um but yeah i I do love this game i love that universe um and all stuff you know so that's part of it of course but uh it, it just has a cool fun dynamic that when i want to play this style of game I'll, I'll have an alternative now and then an alternative to another game which it might be an alternative to this one i'll wait to get do we get there but when you have this sort of like table talk betrayal like diplomacy you know diplomacy style game i like some of that once in a while and this is this is mine like i talked about San Juan is like that's mine that's mine that's my, that's my card game i love that that's my thing you know, if somebody else can like Race of the Galaxy or Glow to Rome better, that's cool. That's your thing. And I still like those games. I like that style of game. But if you want to pin me down and say, what do you, what's your game there? I said, my card game San Juan. Well, my diplomacy game is Game of Thrones. Um, it's just great. The combat thing is cool. And just the lo- sort of layers of what you have to kind of read into what people are doing. There's just tons of depth there. And then, of course, all of the theme and stuff from the books and the TV shows and all that stuff really comes out of it. Um, it's fantastic. It's just really, really cool. And I, I, you know, I can't recommend it enough. And player count, I think you want a full boat of six people. I think you can play with eight with the expansion. I don't know if I'd do that. <laughs> I'd probably play it with six and then have the two vassals. I don't know. I'd be down. I would be down to play with eight because I really like Game of Thrones. So, um, it could be fun. So anyway, that's, that's number five. The alternative would be Rising Sun. And so I talked about Ankh and Blood Rage a video or two ago. Uh, rising sun is probably my least favorite of the three eric Lang games but it's probably the one that's kind of most like game of thrones because of the whole battle system has the same vibe where you kind of like have this weird shifting order of operations idea and that can have an effect on future battles and that whole like cascading battle order thing that's really what rising sun is, is about in a lot of ways and a lot of area controls i think the good ones kind of do that and all has a little bit of that too um, and Game of Thrones has a little bit of that. But Rising Sun really kind of grinds into that and leans into that mechanically. And you have the cool special abilities and powers and you got the role selection stuff there, um, which has a little bit of the, you know, face-down action vibe. It's a different world, but it has a similar sort of tension to the Game of Thrones thing. So, yeah, I would recommend Rising Sun. If you want, like, maybe a slightly more efficient and elegant Game of Thrones and maybe you're not into Game of Thrones, right? You just don't really care about that universe or anything. Uh, Rising Sun is set in no universe. It's a similar to Shadows of Brimstone earlier with the samurai stuff. Like it's set in some kind of fantasy Asian thing. I'm like, I don't think these are based on anything. (laughs) I think they got in trouble for saying one of the gods in the Rising Sun game was based on something and then it was like, no, you made this up. (laughs) Like this is not a real thing at all. Um, But yeah, none of it feels like it's based on any kind of reality to me. Although I'm sure they pulled from some, you know, some mythology and stuff that's historical. Uh, but there's, I don't personally have any connection to that. So if you want to play something that is, you know, somewhat detached and more of like an elegant, pure game type of idea, Rising Sun is there. Because it's a very good game and I really do enjoy um, Rising Sun. And it's most like Game of Thrones that I that I can think of. Uh, so that's number five. Number four is Kalus 1303. Now, Kalis used to be my number one game of all time. It's actually, I think last time I did this, it was number two. Now it's dropped to number four. I don't know that it will get any lower than that, but maybe a game like number three will come out. We'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Um, Kalis 1303, the original Kalis, I really like that. Really enjoy it. 1303 improves on it for the most part, Don. I didn't say everything, Don. It's an inside joke with a guy on the Secret Cabal Gaming Podcast named Don. But Kalis 1303 improves on most of things in Kalis, uh, which came out in 2005. Kalis 1303 came out a couple of years ago. It's a worker placement game. The original Kalis was like the second worker placement game ever. It was the one that kind of put worker placement on the map. And you go in and you build the castle and you build sort of the uh, supporting buildings in the village. So the castle and the village kind of grow at the same time. And you're juggling your workers and managing that and... in. You can build buildings that other people can use and all these different things. And it's a resource management thing. You're sending batches of goods to the castle to support that. And in the 1303 edition, you're able to kind of like draft these little special characters to give you little you know bonus abilities and all that kind of stuff. Very, you know, super, like the most Euro thing on this entire list is Caylus 1303. Like pure Euro game. Like, even the Lacerda games, they're their own thing. That's a Euro game, okay, sure. But it's also just a Lacerda game. <laughs> like, that's its own thing. Kalis 1303. Let me just look at my list real quick. Yeah, there's some others you could argue. But this, to me, is the most Euroy thing on this list. Um, and I absolutely love it. I love the meanness of it. Because you have this whole Sheriff and Provost thing where... You put the workers down and then people can manipulate that and then you can screw it all the way to the back and people are like, oh, I don't get to do anything this round or not a hundred percent of everything I wanted to do. And it has that little element there at the table, which I like. I like that. I love the aspect of that. So, so similar to some of the themes of the things we've talked about recently, Cuba Libre, Clash Cultures, Game of Thrones is that pulls me into the cutthroatness of the theme of like, hey, we're trying to you know, carve our niche out as these merchants and aristocrats or whatever in this new village of Calus with the castle. And we got to manipulate and bribe that provost to give us access or prevent access to these different things. That feels very much like, you know, bureaucratic and, uh, you know, there's a very like Washington DC kind of vibe there to me about people being manipulative and just being terrible people. And, I wouldn't say that. It excites me as in reality, but in a game situation, I like that. And this is, a, like I said uh, earlier, this is a theme completely removed for me. It's some village in France from, you know, a thousand years ago. Well, not quite, but, you know, 700, 800 years ago. And, you know, I like that. I like that sort of jocking. It's perfect for a game. I really like that. Now, the one thing that the new one doesn't do that the original does which I thought about it. I was thinking about it a little bit before I hit record on this video. I don't know that it really bothers me anymore. Like I said, it did before, Don. And that is in the original, the end game was very variable. Whereas in this one, it's just nine rounds. You play nine rounds and then that's it. Now, the cool thing about having an end game that is not fixed is it just allows for you to kind of push on certain things and either try to race an ending or, try to put pull the brakes on an ending of the game and like figure that into all of your decisions and strategy. Now, I will bet you money that like 95% of games of Kalis ended after nine rounds or something. <laughs> because I was thinking about this earlier with 51st State and Imperial Settlers, these are two card games, which is not really relevant. One of them ends after you hit 25 points. One player hits 25 points. The other one ends after five rounds. And guess what? In the fifth round, somebody hits 25 points more often than not. There are some times you can hit that in the fourth round, and very probably less times in that game where you'd hit it in the sixth round. But like 90% of the time, it's five rounds. So what difference does it make? (laughs) Um, And I thought about that more and more and more, and I'm like, yeah, 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 it doesn't make a difference. It might, it's like an illusion of, of, of like dynamics, and it's not even actually there. So I'm not sure about that. But the other stuff that the new one does that, to me, blows the old one out of the water now that I've played the new one even more is the character thing where you can steal other characters, you can get the characters, um, the variability of the favor tracks, so you can get, like, you sort of shuffle up the bonuses uh, each game, so that's going to be different each time. That is such a cool dynamic in this game that the original just... Doesn't really have in that degree. Now the original has cer- certain things in some degrees because p- one of the parts of Kalis that makes it so great is based on which buildings you kind of overbuild and and which buildings you decide to put out there. That's going to change like the balance of the economy from game to game. It's so, like if nobody builds the uh, I think it's called a lawyer, um, but you know the building that gets cloth out easier or the building to no that's not the lawyer anyway. Forget the name of it, but we're the one that you can upgrade the. Um, uh, to the stone building versus the wood buildings. If those don't get built out by somebody. There's going to be some, like little chokeholds put on different parts of the economy. And like last time, well, Billy built that on his first turn. So now we had this kind of ease ease of uh, access to cloth or the stone buildings and that kind of stuff. So that dynamic's going to change back and forth. Now, the new one also has, because of the variability in some of the little bonus buildings and the little favor bonuses, that's also going to kind of dictate you know what's in the game so the game itself on it's on right on setup is going to have an impact on what is sort of valuable in the game and even the, the characters that you shuffle up and deal out that's going to have those bonuses are going to have impact so it really leaned into all of that stuff and to me that's what holds it above the original and then yeah the variable game ending i think it might be an illusion don <laughs> all right a uh, player count i didn't talk about that okay so I also like the new one a little bit better at two players. I never have liked the original Kalis at two players. It is too much like chess. It's too much, It's I hate it. The dynamics, I just hate it. It was my favorite game of all time before. And I friggin' hate it at two player. I will never play it at two player. Um, this one I would probably play at two player. It's a little bit easy, more easy going, but, um, but I would play it at all the other player counts anytime. No problem at all, no problem there's just great dynamics and stuff like that uh to to kayla's 1303 now the alternative is uh bus i think bus is actually the first worker placement game but i wanted to give a shout out to bus because there's been a new edition from capstone and it what it is is about building these bus routes for people to you know travel on and so you're like establishing routes that people will basically ship across and you get points that way It also has time travel. (laughs) So it has this one space where you can like slow down or speed up time, not time travel, but you can adjust the pace of time. Um, I don't want to get too much into it, but I would recommend folks give it a try because from a pure like, I don't know, studiousness aspect or something, the bus worker placement dynamic is like when when I look at that and I see... All the worker placement games that have come after that, I'm like, I'm not even Kayla's, like it has not captured the timing pacing dynamic that's in bus because it is such like weird, it's like you marry worker placement to some kind of 18xx train idea and you stir it up and the, you have that timing aspect that is just so bizarre and so sort of taxing but the game is actually very straightforward there's a slight wrinkle in the rules i remember that's just it's a little little tricky but it's not too bad once you kind of figured that out Thing about how you can extend routes in certain ways once you once you see how that works you're like oh okay that makes sense the rest of the game is pretty straightforward but man strategically and brain burning wise ooh, it's something else so i just wanted to kind of give that a little bit of a shout out here because that i think that was the original Worker placement game, yeah. So Kalos would be number three. Some people call it Aladdin's Dragons the first one, but that's more of an auction game. I don't count that one. And then Bus would be number one. Kalos would be number two. Worker placement game. Um, but yeah, I can't recommend a, bus, recommend a Bus enough. And I had Caverna earlier. That's another worker placement game. And he, after a while, like after Kalos and Agricola and all that stuff came out, I was like, yeah, worker placement. This is like, all, they all kind of feel the same. But the timing funkiness of Bus, I haven't seen that. So I, I got to recommend that one. All right, so that's four. Number three is Dune Imperium. Um, yeah, Dune Imperium. It was my favorite game two years ago. I would say with the first expansion, uh, Rise of Ix, that has just propelled it way up my list. I can't play this game enough. I like it all the player counts, one, two, three, and four. It plays great solo, great two players, great three players, great four players. It has all of this sort of meanness and cutthroatness and all that stuff that you I talked about with Kalis. It has a really cool theme, which I love, which is the Dune theme. It's got deck building. It's got worker placements. Uh, it's got like a sort of a little combat thing that is that is not necessarily the focal point of the game which i love because you can score points lots of different ways um i was talking to a friend about this the other day you got these like four or five different tracks depending on which expansion you're playing with or not and it's like, hey, the tracks are thematic. Because <laughs> a lot of these Euro games is like, there's a track to move up. <laughs> and it's like, cool. Like, what is that? It's like, it's just like, eh, it's a place to spend stuff. <laughs> so to balance the rest of the game. And it's like, yeah, okay. Thanks for the track, guys. Um, but these are like, the tracks like matter. They're like, oh, you're getting influence with these four different factions. You get little bonuses and stuff. And you can like take it from each other. And you could focus on that and be like, cool, you guys fight. I'm gonna go get influence with all four factions and, you know, behind the scenes, we're gonna do our little dirty deals and, you know, and then I'm gonna get points other ways through the spice cards and stuff. And cool, you know, you, you might have won five battles, but, you know, I win the game because, you know, I was manipulating everything behind the scenes and all your troops are dead now, you know, and it has all that stuff. And a lot of those things, like, you think about with, like, the Game of Thrones game that I just mentioned, this has, like, a lot of those sort of same feelings, but without sort of that... Obvious mechanic of negotiation. Like it's all driven by the actual levers that you're pulling with the deck building and the worker placement and all that stuff. You're just doing it all on the table. You're just doing all of that stuff, you know, through all the levers and stuff that you're pulling. Um, And it just makes it great. And the thing I like about with the expansion, I think you need the first expansion, in my opinion. It adds enough variety and stuff to the cards to. Just make it a lot more replayable and just give you some other kind of fun sort of, you know, strings to pull on. You've got the whole idea of the uh, uh, the uh, the dreadnoughts and stuff like that. That'll come out. You know, it's weird. I've had a couple of people tell me, well, it just makes the game all about the battles. It does not. Do not believe anybody that tells you that. Because I have seen somebody win the game who had the ability to beef up their dreadnoughts. I can't remember which faction that was. And then never built a single Dreadnought and won the game. And it was because of the threat of the Dreadnoughts. And the rest of us were like, oh, we're going to fight. And he was like, oh, you guys fight. So that whole scenario I just talked about a couple minutes ago, I mean, that's just one example of it. Um, Now, again, you can get the Dreadnoughts and it could be important in some games. Uh, You know, it's similar to Clash of Cultures. Like, the games are not going to play out the same. And the extra cards and stuff like that in that first expansion lend itself to that they really contribute to having the dynamics the second expansion i enjoy i like it i probably play with it every time i don't know to me it feels a little bit superfluous that that second expansion i you know if you never wanted to play with that i'd be like fine no big deal um i am nervous if they're going to come out with more expansions because i don't think, like i talked about with san juan earlier i'm like don't don't touch it (laughs) i think it's fine um but yeah, and since it has the Doom thing, uh, there's lots of different asymmetric factions. That's cool. You get the little ring powers and stuff that you can activate. All this stuff. It's just fantastic. Uh, now, the alternative for this one would be Dune, the original 1979 game. And I also like that game. And this was the game that I mentioned when, when I was talking about Game of Thrones, which I would kind of throw Dune in as an alternative to that. Because it has that kind of table talk idea. You really want the six players uh, for Dune. I think you need the six players for Dune. Uh, no question. I think maybe five you could do. Um, and it has that cool table talk, backstabby, diplomacy kind of aspect. Really cool funky powers and stuff like that. That's really cool. Um, and it's a, it's a unique kind of one-of-a-kind experience. You can te- you can team up in that one and win together, uh, which I really like. I talked about that in Ankh, I think, last week or the week before and it has that element in spades in dune i mean that's usually i think how we've seen people win it is as a team so um it's such a unique one-of-a-kind experience and you can go pick it up pretty cheaply from Gale Force 9 it's actually not too complex they've got the rules broken down fairly nicely with the basic and the advanced games so you could you could get in there and play the basic game and then i would say move quickly to the advanced game because it's not that much more advanced um but yeah, but for me though, if you had to pin me down and say like, well, okay, we're doing your top 50, well, I'd rather play Game of Thrones just because I think I like the game better. And if you had to pin me down and play a Dune game, I'd be Dune Imperium just because I'd like Dune Imperium better. Even if you somehow rip the Dune theme out of both games, like imagine that if you ripped the Dune theme out of both games, I'm like Dune Imperium all day, <laughs> there's no question. Like Dune needs the Dune theme. It, yeah, it does. If it was some other theme, I like, I'd be like, I don't care about this. <laughs> Dune Imperium, like, eh. It, 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 Dune theme helps, but it would be like, be like oh, this is a cool deck building worker placement game. You know, it's, you uh, know, it, it, I don't need the Dune theme necessarily to care about it. Now, of course, it enhances it. Anyway, so that's number three. And then number two is now Frostgrave. Uh, this is, uh, I've talked a ton about it on the channel. It's a two player or more if you want to have a campaign with more people, uh, miniature skirmish game. and it's set in wizards. You have, you have different wizards and their apprentices and their war bands in the kingdom of felstat, lost city of Felstat and then it's basically nicknamed Frostgrave and you run around and try to collect magic items and level up your wizards and your apprentices and get artifacts and get more magic spells and become better wizards. And there's like eight classes of wizard that you can pick a couple from and you run around and cast spells you roll d20 so it has a very dnd vibe to it it can be very swingy that way which is good and it's just a lot of fun you can have a lot of fun painting the miniatures and building the terrain and running the campaigns and all that stuff is super fun um, and I can't say enough about it like if you had to delete my entire room of stuff you got to say go for it take it away <laughs> you're not taking my Frostgrave stuff and, you know, uh, it's just great. It is, it is without the D&D, like, commitment of playing a campaign for a year or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, it has the tactical fun combat. It's got the craziness of outcome, which I really love. I love it. Because it's not about, like, trying to win the game. The narrative part of it is there. I talked a couple episodes about um Necromunda. Um, But to me, the Frostgrave system is just more fun. It's way more accessible than Necromunda. I like the theme of Frostgrave more because I love this idea. This is such a cool thing and I don't think it gets probably enough credit for it. It probably does. But, you know, when people start talking about miniature games and skirmish games and stuff like that, Frostgrave is really cool because it's just about wizards. It's just wizards. (laughs) Like there's no... You can hire little fighters. Who cares? Little fighters and rangers and whatever else. You just run around with wizards casting all kinds of crazy spells, <laughs> like walls of smoke, you know stone walls and uh, you could be a necromancer, or raise the dead and you can blast people you know with stuff and uh, all kinds of like mental magic and just everything. like there's so many just so many spells, there's like a hundred spells or something in there. And you do it and then like you can kill yourself you know casting spells if you're all bad enough and all this stuff can happen because this is a crazy D20 game. But if you're playing it, like you're not playing it to like be a competitive, you know, number crunchy gamer guy. Now, there's enough there that you can there's stuff that you can tinker with and fiddle with around the edges, so that keeps it engaging. But it, it just it lands purely on the fun side of the world. And I just cannot recommend it enough. And I've said it here a thousand times, I'll say it again. It's cheap. You go buy a $20 book, do you have a board game with fantasy miniatures? Okay, play it. You can set up crap on the table, like, you know, little cans and of Coke and coffee mugs or whatever to build terrain and then over time you can collect a friggin' closet of terrain like I have. And you can play it and it's just fun. It's easy. To, like once you have like played a game or two of it and then Got into it. It's just so easy to quick pick up and play. You just won't really have to remember too much, too many rules or anything, which can be a problem with a lot of these other miniature games. Like you know, talking about Age of Sigmar last week, tons of rules, all that stuff. But you know, that's what it's for. Necromunda, even more rules, <laughs> but tons of other stuff. But um, but this is like right in between, like kind of uh, you know, Warcry. I talked about that, and Necromunda. It's like right in between that. Like it's definitely more complex than Warcry. Maybe not. It's probably like a little bit lesser down. But there's more stuff you can do. Like I said, it's just pure wizards and spells. And you can just cook up all of these cool scenarios. And there's tons of like supplements. So if you're like, I'm getting kind of bored with like the 20 scenarios that are in the base book. um, You know, you can go pick up the Necromancer one. Or the one that's like goes through the dungeons in the underground caves. And so you could use your dungeon tiles and stuff like that to go through that. Um, But it is just such a fun experience. And it's, it seems like something new happens every time I play it. Um, and I just can't recommend it enough. It's everything that you you want in, a, in like a miniature game. And I, I'll put this link below. I talked a little bit about quality. I'll talk about more about it at the end of this. But I wanna mention it here because I did a top 10 skirmish game video. And some of those other ones could have creeped up here like and they would be in my top 100 that are in that video and I'll link it below. Um, but the, to me, this is this is what I want, and I and I definitely talk more about it in a lot of detail about the miniature skirmish kind of world in that video, which I don't want to spend too much time doing again here. Um, but it, it'll, it'll explain it in more depth because you're going to be like, hey, there's a bunch, but a bunch board games mostly. But now he's going to end this with, you know, this game, and then we'll see what the next game is. But you know, this kind of this kind of comes out of left field, and I'll explain a lot about that in more detail there. Uh, now, the alternative to this would be it's kind of a cop-out, but Stargrave, (laughs) which is Frostgrave in space, basically. Um, And I'll be honest with you, I debated which one I should actually have as the entry, whether it be Frostgrave or Stargrave. I got to come down on Stargrave because like I said, it's just wizards, which is just friggin' cool. (laughs) Stargrave is like, Necromunda would probably be higher in the list, but there's Stargrave. <laughs> so I mean, I have played so much Stargrave with my Necromunda miniatures that it's like, mm, do I need to play Necromunda? Um Stargrave is it's 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 Frostgrave in space. It, it it's not wizards, you have like different captains and um uh first mates and stuff like that. And it has the same Thing as Frostgrave. Now the thing about Frostgrave is, the setting is a little bit more important, I think, for that game. Whereas Stargrave, you just can just throw a hunk of sci-fi terrain on the ground, and you just play through it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, I'm trying to struggle with the words to to put in here. Um, I don't know. It's it's maybe it's just more of a theme preference thing. Might just would be more of a taste thing than I, anything I can really pin down too precisely. But there's something about the setting of the world of 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 Frostgrave that it's it's so much of its own entity. Where Stargrave, like I said, well, I play with Necromunda miniatures, right? So I set it in like Necromunda in my brain, and I used to do this with Frostgrave, where I kind of set it in because I had a ton of Age of Sigmar miniatures, I would kind of set it in the you know the realms, the eight realms. But over time, as I've played it more, it's been more of a, no, this is, I'm playing in the world of Frostgrave. Where Stargrave, I'm still kind of like in the mindset of, mm, kind of a Necromunda vibe going on in my brain. Um, and and the, thing, the other thing with Stargrave is it's kind of like a, um, a rogue trader, which is another 40K world. It feels very much like that. Um so yeah, but it kind of is a mood thing, right? It's fantasy, sci-fi, that kind of stuff. And there are little nuances and differences between the two as well that make me kind of interested. The solo mode in Stargrave I actually like better. I've played it with it in Frostgrave, but to me that's better as a kind of a head-to-head. I don't know, you need that other person at the table to bounce the whimsy off of. I don't know. It's strange. So anyway, I don't want to to try to belabor this and stumble through words too much more. But that's my number two, Frostgrave. So the last one, probably surprising not very many people, is Rangers of Shadow Deep. Now, the same designers, Frostgrave and Stargrave, uh, Joseph McCullough. Rangers of Shadow Deep is is solo or co-op from the ground up, pure solo co-op miniature skirmish game, very much same system as... Frostgrade for Stargrave with some significant differences. Now you might say, well, you're kind of cheating here because it's kind of the same system. I don't think so. Um to me, Rangers sets itself apart in a lot of ways because it is the most DD-esque of these systems here. Because you have a little bit more control over your group. You have like a ranger, which isn't just like somebody with a bow. It could be, you know, a spellcaster or whatever. But that's like the leader of your party. And then you do level up your other party members, your companions in this case. So you have a group system uh, that's going on. And the one thing that it does that I think to me makes it like the most... Uh, for me, obviously, it's my top fifty. For me, the most special thing is it has this huge narrative of like many books now, and I've not even made a dent. Probably more than halfway through all the books, and having and I've gone back and replayed the original so just was it six campaign six yeah six scenarios in kind of the starter thing to kind of introduce you to this world and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's cool because it's like it balances some of what I talked about at the beginning of the video that sort of procedurally generated, you know, kind of build a party, see what happens, but also has a narrative that you can kind of hitch on to and play with that and and go through it, but it's still replayable. I mean, I would go through and play through the original 6 again for a third time. This would be the third time I would do it. No question. Because you have so much that you can kind of throw at the game. The different types of rangers, different types of companions you can throw at it. Um, it's a D20 thing, so it has this very, you know, funky outcomes and that kind of stuff. It, um, it has this event system, which you just, you get like a deck of cards, uh, playing cards, you know. Hearts, spades, clubs, all that stuff. And you set that deck up based on the scenario and certain things will happen. And it's really kind of a clever thing that he does with that because it'll just be like, oh, you know, maybe you only have like four cards in the deck and like this turn, I don't know, the spiders appear or the bridge collapses or whatever. Um, but it also he does some stuff with it where it will be kind of based on things that happen and stuff. So it's not as always, as just straightforward as like, oh, spawn two more flies, you know, or whatever. It's, there's some, there's some nuance there to that. So, it has that perfect little balance of, like, again, it's just a book. You can get a book cheap, like 20, 25 bucks or whatever. Uh, you set up, a, it doesn't take up ever a big footprint. There's never more than probably 10 models on the table at any one time, usually. And that's you, your warband, and, you know, the NPCs that you're fighting. It's usually like two and a half feet, three, three and a half feet by three and a half or two and a half feet. Um, it is probably it's only kind of drawback for accessibility is the terrain is very important uh, that you want to make it so that it is matching what is going on with the scenario. Whereas like Frostgrave and stuff like that, it don't really matter. You want You want a bunch of stuff on the table just to kind of block line of sight and things. Um, and there are some scenarios where you kind of, you want like a specific thing, but who cares? Like in those games, like, oh, okay, that is a fountain, you know, but it's not, it's just a little gravestone. You know, and you can, you can cook the thing up in your brain. This one, you can still do that, but it's a little bit more tight on terms of that. That'd probably be the only drawback to me, like fully recommending it to everybody. But you, you can work your way around that and you can just like live in that world. You can just live in that space and it's just such a cool storytelling um, device. At the same time, because you've got all the procedural stuff, the narrative stuff, and the plot line, and the game mechanics, and it just pulls on all of the different levers for me. And the world building, like I talked about with Age of Sigmar, and the painting, and the terrain stuff, and the setup, and all—it just hits all of the gamer stuff, right? that's involved and your companions can die and you gotta go hire a new one and it sucks and you feel sad for them or whatever, not really. (laughs) But it's like, like, oh, these people would feel sad. So I feel sad on their behalf. Not like in some of these other games where I'm like, this is making me viscerally angry and mad. (laughs) Uh, Not in this game. But it does that enough where it's like, oh, I can be detached enough from it. It doesn't like piss me off actually when somebody dies. It makes me engaged as if I'm watching a movie and saying, oh, those people must feel terrible. (laughs) Um, Anyway, But, um, but yeah. So I just cannot recommend it enough. And like I said just a minute ago, if you had to burn everything down, then I would just take my, basically take my Joseph McCullough books, my little box of miniatures, and then, you know, the train you can have, I'll make train later, and then, <laughs> and rebuild my world, and then I would be good. I'd be good to go. Um, now, the alternative for this one uh, is uh, it's called Five Parsecs from Home, and I like this one. That's a good game. Uh, it, to me, it doesn't really you know hold a candle to rangers five parsecs from home is like a sci-fi solo co-op I miniature mean, skirmish game now there is another one called five uh five leagues from the borderlands something like that that's like the fantasy version of five parsecs from home i haven't played the five leagues one uh i assume it's cool but the five parsecs is fun and it, it is like rangers in a way sci-fi but it's like rangers but it doesn't have a narrative it's just purely procedural, like you are like procedurally generating all of the planets and factions and everything is just being generated, and that's really fun. Now you spend, like Necromunda, you spend probably a lot of time like rolling up the universe than you do in the actual combat, probably even more so than Necromunda, like the combat in 5 Parsecs can go really quick, so you're like, oh, I just set the terrain up and now it's over, okay that's not a big deal because you can easily gear it to like well we're going to revisit that you know we're going to go back there so i don't have to like tear it down and build something completely different but it is kind of a different wrinkle on the thing that is going on with rangers of shadow deep and you know five parsecs or five leagues if you like fantasy or sci-fi i would recommend taking a look at it because it's a neat kind of experience um yeah, I, I still have the five parsecs book on my shelf there. And uh, definitely it's something I would be down to play again. Um, but it's weird because like, it, because it's missing the narrative part. It, it like doesn't have that like extra hook that it, Rangers does for me. Because Rangers, it's set. And this is the thing with Frostgrave too. It has a setting. Like it has a world that gives me just enough tools for my imagination to go in and start coloring in the lines, right? Whereas, like five parsecs, it's com- it's almost like a completely blank canvas. Um, so that's where I give the edge to, for me, uh, Rangers, and that and that I think that kind of like in a way kind of sums up what I was talking about earlier with Brimstone and some of these other games, um, where. I just need a little bit, of, just a little bit of help, and then I can kind of get be in and off of running and tell adventure stories and that kind of thing. Um, but not too much help, because I don't want I don't want you, I don't want you to just tell me a story necessarily. But there are of course exceptions like Pandemic Legacy. Okay, so that is uh, my top fifty games, and so we'll just talk briefly here about the process. I talked about this in the original video. I have a link which I'll have in this video too to where I talked about Brass Birmingham becoming the number one game on BGG and how this series for me is about some of those things I talked about in that video about Brass Birmingham, where these are not, I think, the highest quality games necessarily, objectively. They're my favorite ones. And so we talked you know, a minute ago about Pandemic Legacy Season 1 and how I could or couldn't put that in this list, where if I have to look at that game again, not to talk about it again, but that's a 10 out of 10 in terms of quality it just is and so that's not what this list is for me and i think you know so there's some of that right so i think if you come at me with like well this game is a better design great it might be i don't care (laughs) and so that that's kind of what fills this list up is that these are my favorite games and i think that's the case for anybody else that does these top 50s or top 100s right it's your favorites games it's not necessarily like the highest quality game. You know, it's it's an interesting thing to talk about in terms of game quality and mechanics and all that stuff. So I just want to kind of restipulate that. I talked about that before. And I already mentioned in this video the top ten skirmish game videos, which I'll have linked below. You know that I'll have some more more of my thoughts on that. Cause like, you know, granted, it is there's mostly board games on this list, and then there's miniature games, and then there's people, mostly they're board gamers. <laughs> They come at me and like, what's this nonsense? You got the miniature game in here. This is a role-playing game. What is this? This is not a board game. Funnily enough, I don't get miniature gamers coming in to me and telling me, what's all this? This is your board games. I don't get that. Why is it the one side always not the other? I don't know. (laughs) But I hate that. It bugs the crap out of me. Um, But I do talk again in that video, this top 10 skirmish game. So if you're like, granted, uh, I started the channel talking about board games, you know, 10 years ago. So... I get it if you're like, well, this is weird. He likes these other games. And you are probably somebody, if you're still watching, that doesn't have the attitude I just described. <laughs> or at least not enough of it to come and like mildly harass me online. Harass is a little bit of a strong term. but um, uh, So yeah. So there's a, some thought process there. And to me, they live in the same world just because there's not a board. You still have a table. that are called tabletop games. You can't just put... The boards don't float in the air, they go on the table. Um, So there's that. And then the other thing is I use, I'll put a link to this as well. I use the Ranker engine at pubmeeple.com, basically loaded my board game collection in there. And then it does like um, swipe left, swipe right thing, or whatever, I don't know how to explain it. But it throws two games together in your collection, you pick one over the other, and then it randomly picks two. And then it slowly starts to sift and sort them. So even the one that you didn't pick before, it'll go against something else that you might have picked or didn't pick. So try to sort some out. So that's kind of what I did here for this, which is basically the process I did before was, was writing it on pieces of paper and then kind of just sorting them out as I kind of walked down the line there. It's basically the same idea there. So I just did it. Although it doesn't pair everything against everything, I don't think, which is kind of strange because I was like, why is this one here? So I did some moderate fudging after the fact because I was like, I don't think it ever asked me to compare Frostgrave to Dune Imperium or something, you know? Um, and I will say the funny thing about doing that is just, if you want to do it for yourself, it's kind of funny because you'll get in there and it'll have like two games. And you're like, oh yeah, this one all day, this one all day. And then you're like, this one, and then you get like two. Like, so when it puts like Frostgrave and Dune Imperium next to each other, like I have this sheer panic attack of <laughs> like, what? i have to make a choice (laughs) because okay you know i've said this in every top 50 top 100 series but i hate the order of this and really if you look up like probably my top i don't know 25 plus games top 30 games something like that like any of those i can almost put them at number one really not to like cheapen anything that i've just been doing but they're like when you're i'm going through and like picking them on the ranker engine It's just like, you know, they'll have like Kalos 1303 and Shadows of Brimstone. And I'm like, I don't even know how to compare these two. (laughs) Like, what mood am I in? (laughs) You know, do I want to play a Euro game or do I want to play this crazy wacky dungeon crawl? Like, I don't know. And I'm like, "Ah, I have to pick one. Okay, this one. (laughs) And then it like starts to reinforce. It's almost like an artificial intelligence thing or something. It's like reinforces like your thoughts. I'm like, oh, I don't like this. It's telling me what I'm thinking now. You know, uh, it's like, no, it, I don't want to have a list. I don't want to order these. I don't want to have a favorite out of these, you know, like don't make me choose. And, um, yeah. So maybe that's why it doesn't show everything against everything. It like kind of infers because you like this more than that. And it sort of stacks it. So it, it feels like it did that. I don't know hundred percent about the algorithm, but I just wanted to talk briefly about like, you know, mechanically how the process kind of went. Okay, well, thanks to everybody for watching this video. I hope they were somewhat entertaining for you. I appreciate you watching, liking, subscribing, all that stuff. I never ask people to do that because I think it's dumb. (laughs) Thanks for watching, though. I appreciate that, for sure. Thanks.